0: Hey y'all, welcome to Calvary. My name's Caleb, and I'm on the tech team, and I play fiddle here. Here at Calvary, we want this to be a place where you can come and worship, get to know God, and connect with our community. If you're new here, we can't wait to get to know you. Feel free to message us on social media, or text the word hello to 587-323-1199, and we'll respond right back. It's a great first step to joining our church family and it's also about daily personal encounters with God, discipleship, and community. If you want to learn more about our culture here, deepen your relationship with God, and find a small group that can really connect with, we'd encourage you to talk to one of our volunteers or our staff after the service. We want to let you know what's going to be happening over the next hour or so. First, Our band is gonna lead us in some worship. Mm -hmm. That'll help us understand who God is, express our love and affection towards him. Afterwards, we're gonna take some time to let you all know about some of the things that are gonna happen here at Calvary. Then one of our pastors will be sharing an encouraging message from our new sermon series. I'm so glad you're here. Now, I invite you to join in with us as we worship together.
1: It's 2012 and I'm in Japan, a younger, much skinnier version of myself, you guys shouldn't be laughing at that, (laughs) a younger version of myself touches down at the Tokyo International Airport. I'm here to officially ask out this girl that I've been writing letters to for the past six months. Now, It's not my first time meeting her. In fact, I I actually met her at this church, volunteering alongside of her in our youth ministry before she went to YWAM Japan. And YWAM is, is Youth with a Mission. It stands for Youth with a Mission, and it's a discipleship training school. I'm still sweating bullets. And it's not because it's hot and humid in Japan, even though it is, but it's because I'm really nervous to see her again. So I hop on a bullet train and I take it across Japan to the Waiwan Bay she's at. She knows I'm on my way, but for her last night, she is going out to one last dinner with the family she's been staying at in Japan. So their son and their daughter-in-law are going to take me out to do a number of activities that Japanese families really enjoy. We go bowling because a lot of people in Japan enjoy bowling. We go to a three-story level arcade. The lights and the sound and the flurry of activity in this arcade is just amazing. And then they take me to a very old, very authentic ramen restaurant. We're nearing the end of the night and they say we have one more activity. Now, they speak very little English. And so, through this electronic translator, they say we're going to something called a Cento, and they use the word, swimming. And I say, okay, great, let's do it, but I, I don't have any swim trunks. And they're looking a little confused, um, but I type it into the translator, and we stop by this convenience store, where the dad, the, the son-in-law, buys me some underwear. And now I'm the one who's looking a little confused. So now we're at the sento. I'm in the men's change room. And I'm noticing that all of the men in there are getting changed into nothing. <laughs> They're getting out of their clothes, out of everything, not putting anything on and then heading into the pools. And that's when it dawns on me. A sento is a Japanese bathhouse. And sentos are extremely common in Japan. Now, men and women are are separate, but it doesn't make it any easier to be in the middle of a public bathhouse where nobody has anything on and I'm the only white person. (laughs) To make it worse, they have signs in the front entrance that say no tattoos. Culturally, only gangsters or the Yakuza get tattoos. And you may not know, but I have tattoos. So not only am I this tall, pale, blonde haired blue-eyed white guy in the middle of a Japanese bathhouse, but now they're thinking I'm part of a gang. (laughs) So I'm just sitting here in this bathhouse, totally embarrassed, and everyone is just staring at me. The funny part is, this girl I want to ask out, who is with the other family for the evening, hears that I'm being taken to a sento. And she instantly thinks, oh boy, I hope he knows what a Japanese bathhouse is before he gets there. <laughs> At the end of the night, I'm saying to myself, this is going to make a very interesting story, whether she says yes to going out on a date with me or not. We're starting our new series today that leads to Easter. It's entitled, Where is God? And my message today is entitled, Who is God? But where is God when we look at this world? In all this brokenness and craziness, where is God? Where is God in our mess? And today I'm kicking off with three main points. Number one, the choice to be separate from God. Number two, who is this God we chose to separate from? And number three, the loss as a result of this separation. Today's message is from Genesis 3. And just so we know, for context, God has already created the world. He's created Adam and Eve, and he's created some parameters for them to function in. One of them is regarding this tree in the middle of the garden. They're not supposed to eat the fruit from it. But Satan, in the form of a serpent, has approached Eve to to entice her and to tempt her to, to eat this fruit, to disregard God's instruction. And that's where we pick up in verse 6 through 11. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, our creator, called to the man and said, Where are you? And man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So, why are we in Genesis for the first Easter message? Unlike most books, which have their, their pivotal moments somewhere around the middle, Genesis chapter 3, three chapters into the Bible— is the pivotal moment for mankind for humanity. If you take Genesis three out of the Bible, the rest of the Bible doesn't make any sense. Genesis chapter one through two talk about the creation of the world, how it's perfect, without blemish, and God said that it was good. But if you skip over chapter three and go into chapter four, you suddenly start seeing shame and murder and envy and hatred. You start to see war, sickness, pain, and death. Then we get to chapter 7, and God is in mourning. He's in mourning because of how much evil there is in the world. And if you skip over chapter 3 and head straight into the New Testament, you read about how God's personhood, God incarnate, creator himself, comes to dwell among us so that he could eventually, knowingly, purposefully, be brutally murdered. Without chapter 3, it's like we're walking into a movie after the plot has already been set, wondering what in the world is going on here. So, let's dig into that with point number one, the choice to separate from God. In the first few chapters of Genesis, there's a lot to unpack, a lot to translate, and a lot to sort through. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to summarize this scenario in the context and themes of the verses we're going over today. Adam and Eve have been created. They've been given the garden to enjoy and are simply told to tend it, to have children and to cover the earth. In fact, they are only given one rule. They're not to eat of the tree in the center of the garden. Well, What's so special about this tree? There's varying views about this tree in the center of the garden, the tree called the knowledge of good and evil. But one thing that is agreed on across the board is that this tree is a choice. A choice to follow God, to obey God, to make him part of our life, or to say, no, I want to do things my own way. A choice to be with God or to be apart from God. Dale Moody, an evangelist and teacher from the 1800s, says, God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden to give Adam and Eve a choice. Adam and Eve were free to do anything they pleased, except to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If God had not given Adam and Eve the choice, they would not have free will, just plainly doing what they were commanded to do. You see, God doesn't want to force anyone to be with him. And so in a place that is is perfect, in a place where mankind is walking with creator God in this garden, knowing God and God knowing them, there still has to be a choice to be with God or apart from God. To be in a relationship with God or to reject him. Because God didn't create us to be robots. Robots. He wants us to have free will. He doesn't want to force anyone to walk with him. To choose to walk with him or not is the concept here. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And this is perfectly described in the first book of John, chapter 2. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, our Creator, but is of the world, this world apart from God. When the woman saw that the the fruit of the tree was good for food, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, excuse me, like John says, And pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. A focus on self-pride, she took some and ate it. But this choice was not just Eve's, it was also just as much Adam's. Verse six continues with, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. There's differing views about if who was with her meant that Adam was present at the time of the temptation or if she took it and, and brought it to him. Regardless of whether Adam was there at, the, at that moment or if, if she brought it to him later, he participated in making the choice just as much as Eve did. Neither one of them could say, the devil made me do it. They both, of free will, independently chose to separate themselves from God. And so Adam and Eve, they chose to sever this relationship with our creator. So point number two, who is this God we chose to separate from? I keep referencing this this God, this creator, but I mean, who is he? Because before we can answer the question in our series, where is God? We have to know who we're talking about. We have to try and picture, to try and understand who he is before we can look for him. If we don't have any idea what someone looks like or even have a description, how can we go looking for them? But how do we even begin picturing someone, a being of this magnitude? My brother-in-law, Christian, gave me the idea for this next illustration, and it just snowballs from here. Psalm 139, it says, our thoughts are precious to God. How, if we were to count how many thoughts he has about us, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Well, how many grains of sand are there in the world? I mean, nobody has counted them, right? No. <laughs> According to the University of Hawaii, while well, grains of sand can't be counted, they can be measured. In 2012, the University of Hawaii reported that if you calculate how many grains of sand are in a teaspoon and then multiply that by all of the beaches and deserts in the world, the earth has roughly seven quintillion grains of sand. That's seven followed by 18 zeros. Seven followed by 18 zeros. So we're going to count those zeros together. Okay? Ready? Here we go. 7-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0 7 and God's thoughts about us outnumber that. But you want to hear something even more wild, something even crazier, is that there are at least 10 times that number of stars in the observable universe. 10 times that number. According to NASA, the the North American Space Agency, and ESA, the European Space Agency, there's around seven sextillion stars in the observable universe. That's 70 with 25 zeros behind it. And Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, lift up your eyes to the sky and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Now, just one more quick reference to help paint this picture, to help round out this picture. Do you know how many atoms are in a single hair on your head? About eight times the amount of stars in the universe. There are eight times as many atoms in a single strand of hair on your head than there are stars in the universe. Matthew 10 says that our creator personally knows the number of hairs on our head. For me, that number seems to be shrinking. <laughs> now, we know the authors of these passages didn't have the ability to estimate the grains of sand in the world, nor did they have the equipment or or knowledge to count the stars in our our solar system, let alone the universe, and they didn't have the technology to count the atoms in a single strand of hair. But we can understand the message behind these references, that our creator is so beyond what we're capable of calculating, capable of observing, and capable of measuring. How can we even begin describing a being of that creativity and immensity? Well, let's see if we can define who he is in the verses we're reading through today. Verses 8 through 9. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Firstly, in these verses, we see that he is a God that walks with us. The first attribute we see here is that this God is someone that walks with us. Our creator walks with us. Despite being the boundless creator that ruptured the galaxies into the sky, who wields cosmic forces that shape planets and stars, he walks with us. His presence is with us. There's some scholarly debate about what the the cool of the day in ancient Hebrew is referring to, But no matter what it ends up being translated as, it's clear that Adam and Eve recognize the sound of his walk. It's audible and that his presence can be felt. We know that it wasn't the first time either because they could recognize him by his sound and his presence. Adam and Eve know that when they hear God walking, he is coming to be with them. This is how God has closeness with Adam and Eve in a very natural, tangible, personal, and physical way. He is the creator that walks with us, the God that is with us. For reference, we have Isaiah 41, which talks about Israel in its captivity. They're afraid and in distress. So God says to them in verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. Then we have Paul, the, the author of Romans, who had been unjustly accused, persecuted, falsely arrested, shipwrecked, threatened, and so much more. In Romans 8, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Our creator is the God that walks with us, but he doesn't just stop there. He seeks us as well. He seeks us out as well. We see that in verse nine and 10, which says, but the Lord God called to man, where are you? He answered, Man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, I'm not sure if Adam and Eve were feeling what I was feeling in that sento in Japan, but they obviously are very uncomfortable with their own nakedness as well, enough to hide in shame. The second attribute we see here is that God is one who seeks us even when we hide from him. God seeks us even when we hide from him. Here, a few verses earlier, Adam and Eve reject God as their ultimate provider. And we'll get into that choice in a few minutes. But God doesn't say, you screwed up, I'm wiping you out and starting over. Here's my wrath, here's my my punishment. Instead, he goes looking for them, asking, where are you? And just a quick tangent, what's interesting to note is that God knows where they are. One of the other attributes to describe God is his omniscience. He knows everything. There's countless other passages that all show that God is all-knowing, from what's in our hearts to what's in our minds. And yet, God asks, where are you? God was giving them a chance to come forward to talk with him about what happened. A famous theologian once said that he doesn't believe prayer is so much for God as it is for us. It demonstrates our desire to have a relationship with our creator. God seeks us even when we tried to hide from him. King David, an ancient king in the Old Testament, wrote a beautiful poem in Psalm 139 saying, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even then your hand will guide me. And then in the book of Luke chapter 15, the religious teachers of the time notice that Jesus is eating with sinners. They say, look at this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus shares this parable saying, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. In this parable, uh, Jesus illustrates how he's willing to leave the 99 sheep that are already safe to go find the one sheep that is lost. And he doesn't get after the sheep when he finds it. He rejoices that this lost sheep is coming home. In fact, we see this theme repeat in parables over and over again through the Bible. That God is someone that seeks to be with us even when we hide, even when we run away, even when we are in the midst of our rebellion, even when we're lost, God seeks to be with us. A few weeks ago, I heard a powerful testimony from a former heroine and methodict. In this experience, the former addict is in a back alley in downtown Chicago. He's by a dumpster going through it looking for food. But he ends up finding used needles, so he takes one of the needles and injects himself with some of the heroin he has on him. He ends up slumping into a puddle beside the dumpster, drooling and half coherent. In this testimony, the former addict says he's never felt lower and he never felt more humiliated and ashamed. <clears throat> Excuse me, ashamed. But as he's lying there in this puddle, he suddenly feels the presence of someone walk up next to him. He feels someone sit down next to him in this puddle. And he says this loneliness, this feeling of humiliation and shame is overwhelmed by the presence of someone being present with him. He was overwhelmed by the fact that someone was willing to sit with him in the trash, in this puddle to be present with him. Not to boot him out of the alley, not to beat him up, not to lecture him, just to simply be there. This presence made him feel loved and convicted, not alone and ashamed. His story is too long to share here, but it set him on this incredible path to recovery. And he believes that this presence that was with him, present in his darkness, was our creator, was God. God walks with us and seeks us even when we try to hide from him. There's even more attributes of God we could go over. God is light, God is love, God is just, but we're not going to get to them today. So we're on to point number three, the loss as a result of the separation from God. Adam, Eve, mankind, humanity decide to reject their relationship with their creator. They decide to choose their own path and go their own way. And there are consequences as a result of losing that relationship. The first consequence is spiritual separation, The perfect relationship between Creator and ourselves was broken. It was fractured. This choice, this disobedience, this sin caused a rift, a divine between the created and the Creator, where previously there had been none. Adam Adam and Eve became aware of their choice, their sin, and they were ashamed. They felt vulnerable and exposed when they had never felt this way in their innocence. I heard a quote one time that defines sin as the act of going against God and his ways. It makes sense that when we're going against something, we are separate from it. By definition then, sin separates us from God. But with the separation of, from God, from his presence, came a curse. With creation in Genesis 2, 15, 2 verse 15, we see that God placed mankind over creation to tend it, to take care of it. But when we rejected God and were left to our own ways, all of creation began to degenerate and deteriorate. Genesis 3 goes on to talk about how the ground became cursed, how it will be painful to grow, harvest, and eat food from it, that it will produce thorns and thistles. With creation fallen, we also see natural disasters in our world, from fires to earthquakes and famines to tsunami floods and tornadoes. Through this decision, this separation we also see sickness, pain, and death enter the world, from cancer and heart disease to genocides, car accidents, and murder. Since God is the creator and giver of life, to be separate from him means to experience death. When I was writing this message, we quickly heard the news about the two officers that were killed here in Edmonton. And when I was talking with some people online about it, I I couldn't help but feel that we were created to experience something other than the brokenness and the fallen state of our world. Created for something greater than this. So we see this physical and spiritual separation from God. We see creation begin to decay. And we see sickness, pain, and death enter the world. But... In the middle of this separation, in the middle of this brokenness and bad news, in the middle of this heartbreak, shame, and grieving, God gives a promise. He gives hope for the restoration of what was. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, he, the Messiah, will crush Satan's head. God promises that Eve will have a descendant that will crush the head of the snake Breaking the curse of death and separation. It is truly amazing that only three chapters into the Bible, we already have a clear and explicit promise of God's plan to save the world through what we know as the gospel. Genesis 3, verse 15, has been called the proto evangelium or the first gospel. The word gospel comes down all the way from this this Greek word, euangelion, which means good news. That is because the promised child of Eve is none other than Jesus, God incarnate. He is the one who crushes Satan's head by taking the curse of sin off of us and onto himself. He announces that one day, a Messiah, God incarnate, would ultimately defeat death, defeat sickness, defeat the brokenness in this world. God wasn't surprised. He wasn't defeated. He allowed us to make a choice, and we made that choice. But with that choice came consequences, a separation from him, both natural and spiritual consequences. But even in that dark moment, there's a promise that guides, that guides mankind. A promise that says there's hope because this relationship will be restored. And we see promises like this throughout the Bible. Promises like in Revelation 21, which says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more pain No more death, no more mourning or sorrow, for the former things have passed away. And we see these promises throughout history as God guides us, as he meets us right where we're at, as he seeks us, as he watches over us until we get to his promise fulfilled in Jesus. But that's a different message coming up in our Easter series. By the way, some other good news, maybe not for all of humanity, but it certainly was for me. That girl I flew to Japan to ask out on a date, she said yes. And then about a year later, I proposed to her. And she said yes to that too. And then we got married, we have two kids, and it's been eight years since. Now, I want to pause for a moment and ask Is the story of Adam and Eve relating to us? If we look inside ourselves, if we evaluate ourselves, is this story relating to us? I don't know what your life, what your story, what your experience has been like, but have you ever cried out, Where is God? Where is God? Do you know what it's like to feel lost, abandoned, or left alone? Do you hear God calling to you, asking, where are you? Do you feel him tugging on your heart during this message? If you're hiding from God, afraid of the guilt and shame in your life, afraid of the, the spiritual nakedness, do you know that he searches for you like a parent who has lost a child? We want you to know that no matter what you've done or where you're at in life, there's a place for you here in our community, in our church community as part of Calvary Community Church. With with what we've learned about God today, we want to emulate what that means to walk with someone through the good times and the really broken times that we all face throughout our life. If that interests you, if you're feeling that pull If you're feeling that separation, especially today, we want you to come talk to us after the service. We would love to connect with you. We'd love to dive deeper into community with one another. And like Pastor Doug says, one of the best ways to do that is through a small group, a group that meets consistently, that talks about the things we've talked about here today, that can be a shoulder for you to cry on during those difficult moments. God wants to walk with you right where you're at. And we want to walk with you too, right where you're at. Before Pastor Doug comes up, do you mind if I I pray with you before we go into communion? Most of you are nodding yes, so I'm going to do it anyways. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to get together. We acknowledge that you're not this being just somewhere out there that doesn't care about us, that doesn't think about us, but you're the one who walks beside us, the one who crosses dimensions, the threshold of heaven to walk beside us, that in our pain, our brokenness, during the the good times and the bad, that you're someone who wants to be there, holding us up and encouraging us. As we go from here today, we ask that we discover you more and more from the bigger details in our lives to the smallest detail of our lives. We ask that you reveal yourself as creator to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.